record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Trisha Yearwood, and you're tuned to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with Bill McLaughlin. Before we turn to Bill and his guests, I just want to give a shout out to the entire Furniture Today team and remind you that when there's something exciting to announce, you'll read about it first in Furniture Today. And now, here's Bill McLaughlin and On the Record. I'm Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. My guest this week is Doug Rosenboom, Senior Vice President of Merchandising and Marketing at ART Furniture. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, It's good to be here. Well, you know, you are uh, now one of three former Thomasville guys I've had uh, in the chair. Um, Adam Tilly actually was the guy who coined the phrase um, after I had Jeremy Hoff on. Adam Adam called up Jeremy and was like, I hear you were in the chair. So it's it's become kind of an internal joke to have, you know, who do we have in the chair this week? So welcome to the chair. Appreciate it. it it's it's my own chair. We're socially distanced and uh, it's comfortable and I've got my coffee. So it's good to good to hear that Adam coined the phrase. It's something he's he's especially very good at. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, why don't we jump right in? I mean, I, I do want to talk about some of the new things that you're doing at uh, ART because um, there have been some significant recent changes and you have, I think, some really noteworthy things to talk about. But why don't we start a little bit about uh, talking about a little bit about your career and and some of the folks that you've crossed paths with. I mean, interestingly, you have had two tenures, right? Two uh, tours of duty, if you will, at Thomasville, 2001 to 2004, and again in 06 and 08. I'd, I'd love to get your take on, you, you're at the company, you you leave to go to Pottery Barn for a while, you come back. What was, what was it like when you were there in the first go-round? And then how did it change when you came back? I'd be curious um, how, the, how you saw the evolution? Yeah, I think it, that's a good question. And, uh, yeah, I've had uh, friends and some family members that have also been part of furniture brands and, you know, uh, uh, have done really well and have seen kind of the full, um, the full gamut of what went on over there. I, I would say Thomasville at that time, uh, definitely was in its heyday and, you know, um, for them at that time, they were starting to open their own retail stores and they stopped doing some of the wholesale business because they were looking to the future. And um, I think they were able to do that because they had enough, um, had esteem and product and clout as a wholesaler um, to start to go into retail, but it didn't, didn't rub everybody the right way, you know. A lot of people got cut off, even to this day, when somebody says, oh, you were at Thomasville, the, the, right out of the, after that, they'll be, you guys cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> and I put my hands up and I'm like, you know, hey, you know, sorry about that. You know, it was, wasn't me personally. So, so yeah, back then, uh, Thomasville, you know, uh, Hickory uh, Business Furniture was part of Thomasville. Pearson Upholstery was part of Thomasville. They had a division up in Virginia that sold uh, product uh, to Target. It was a fairly dynamic uh, business and, um, you know, really at the top of their game, I think. And um, but I think, you know, nothing ever lasts forever. You know, there's um, the retailer Ashley of today was a Heilig Myers before. And um, there's people that come and go and 
I think that's the key thing is knowing how to evolve um, in a changing market. I don't think I've ever been in a company or a market that wasn't changing. And, you know, some people might say, you know, um, well, it used to be great. <laughs> you know, remember when it was this? And I, I look back and say, you know, that doesn't really do a lot of good because things are always changing and it's kind of how, how you deal with change that's really makes you, you know, a good manager or executive or, or, or whatnot. So, but yeah, that first stint really kind of the heady times of Thomasville. And, um, I left, I got recruited to, uh, go to Pottery Barn. I remember the first person who asked me, they were like, why would you go, you know, join like a pottery company? (laughs) 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 And, and, uh, which is funny, you know, they literally, they they were serious. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, I I left Thomasville at that time, um, was recruited by William Sonoma, which owns Pottery Barn. Um, and initially uh, didn't think it was the right move for me. Um, but ultimately, um, saw that as a, as a real learning time and challenge. Uh, if anything, I try to learn, I'm just a voracious learner and, um, took that as an opportunity to go into a whole new business back when, uh, barely anybody in the furniture industry was selling online or via catalog that was, you know, pottery barn was the behemoth. So. Yeah, so I want to go work for a, for a pottery company for a while. <laughs> well, it's it's really kind of interesting. I mean, Pottery Barn was the RH. I mean, at that time when you went to Pottery Barn, <clears throat> Restoration Hardware was literally selling hardware, right? I mean, it, it wasn't anything um, like what we think of today. And, and the Pottery Barn really is very much the... Um, the pre the precedent to that or the you know, kind of the the progenitor to that yeah and probably see i was when i joined it was just a few years removed from where when gary friedman was actually at william sonoma and pottery barn so and his mark was still there i worked for thalia tejada um who was the uh the archetype of the Pottery Barn brand, the Pottery Barn brand, the look and feel is Thalia Tejada. That's who that is, that, that look and feel. Now she um, is in, she's a chief creative officer now for RH working for Gary. And so I uh, had coffee with her maybe 18 months ago in Corte Madera, California. I was in town. I said, Hey, you want to have coffee? And I went to the RH corporate office and, you know, she's still doing what she was doing. I learned a lot from her, uh, my time at, at Pottery Barn. And, uh, you know, in, in that era, that's exactly when, to your point, RH went from selling trinkets and, you know, faucets and a little bit of furniture to um, actually getting serious about furniture. And we lost a couple of our employees, um, my, my folks. Um, that worked for me at the time to RH and we would run into them at market and just, you know, smolder at each other. So <laughs> those were the days. Right. You pretend to be friendly, right? You're kind of friendly. That's right. Yeah. There's Gary, you know, yeah. in his jeans, you know, and smolder. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious. So, and I, when you went back to Thomasville from Pottery Barn, how had it changed? It was definitely a company who um, 
was starting to morph from the kind of furniture brands of old and um, the Mickey Holloman days and starting to transition into, I think, trying to be not just a furniture company, but to be like, like a business, you know, that people would want to invest in. And so I think when you do that, you say, Hey, let's, let's bring these people on board or these people on board. And, and, you know, they may not, you know, have, have spent their career in furniture. And I think that's great, you know, to bring in lots of other people, but they maybe brought in a few folks that maybe looked at the bottom line a little bit more than they looked at, you know, what their customers wanted. Um, and started to try to be a consumer oriented company and bring on consumer oriented people. Um, and, uh, so, you know, a couple of consumer packaged goods folks and, and, you know, I think that changes how, uh, a, a wholesale furniture company works. And, um, I think tried to change the way that they did business in a time when they likely needed to change. Um, but just perhaps went in the wrong direction. And, um, so I was, uh, I think when I was, you know, I've, you always end up working for multiple people cause it's a revolving door in some cases. And, uh, um, I was there and we were doing great things again. I think we had just sold Hickory business furniture or something, uh, when I was there, which was odd because they were the, they were making money, um, and we're still sending a lot of money to furniture brands, but absolutely the business did start to change and um, brands started to change. You know, Thomasville um, was still benefiting from its own brand. Uh, when I was there, we uh, did outdoor furniture with Home Depot using the brand to kind of build on our cabinetry program that was also at Home Depot. Um, but, you know, furniture retail was changing and retailers were becoming their own brands. And, um, I think, you know, it just, the wholesale business wasn't the same as it was in the early noughts in the 1990s. And, uh, really they, Thomasville, I felt started to lose traction. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if Thomasville had pursued more of the model, um, that that Bassett and Ethan Allen and Lazy Boy and and even Ashley um, have pursued, where the you know the factory feeds the stores as well as the you know the the dealer business, and and there's a little more synergy um, if they had focused on retail a little more and continued to think of themselves as a furniture brand. Do you think that would have changed the trajectory? And it's just a hypothesis. I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, I think. I'm sure early on it wasn't always easy for Bassett either mm-hmm. to go from a wholesaler to a retailer and then having the right retail people on, on board who really knew what they were doing because it's a totally different business. I'm, I, I learned that um, joining Pottery Barn. I mean, we, in furniture, we were doing almost a billion dollars, but the company was a $3 billion company with, with William Sonoma. And uh, uh, I learned a lot. Um, I learned that it's not easy, you know, and it's a, being a retailer is a seven day a week job and, you know, you're never done. Um, uh, I think Thomasville at that time, you know, just there's, there's a lot that you need to have. You need to have, you know, lots of money, cash flow. You have to have patience. 
um, to grow. I think it's probably one of the bigger missed opportunities out there because the brand is still relevant uh, today. So um, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what might have went wrong, but absolutely. And and Jamie Collins can tell you too. Jamie's a, a great friend of mine and was building the Thomasville retail program. You know, there was a lot of interest in opening a store. Um, maybe didn't franchise it quick enough. I think a lot of the uh, uh, former Thomasville wholesale uh, retailers out there felt Thomasville was just trying to take their market away. So, you know, Ashley's probably done it better than anybody has by, you know, really partnering the but with the best retailers out there to old open Ashley stores in addition to their own. And uh, I was in Costco last week and saw, you know, the Thomasville brand on a, you know, nine ninety nine sectional, <laughs> and and it, it was kind of like, well, there there it is. <laughs> so yeah, probably a number of missteps, but I think ultimately a, a a real missed opportunity with with you know a number of those brands st- that still had some relevance. Well, uh, I mean, it's a funny. Here's a here's a personal story. Um, Long before I ever got into the furniture business and ever knew anything about furniture brands, the first um, dining room set my wife and I ever bought when we bought our first house, and and we thought we had made it, right? This was, we were grownups because we could go to a store and afford to buy a Thomasville dining room set. That was, that was an aspirational purchase for us at the time, and we felt, you know, so grown up because uh, we had bought you know, a, a true brand of furniture. It, it was a great brand in its day. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, lest we forget that also during this, you know, early 2000s to 2008, which is the when I left, um, just before the global economic crisis in the fall of 2008. I mean, during that time, Thomasville in particular, like like dozens of other companies, couldn't compete with us manufacturing anymore. And, you know, the, uh, uh, folks within furniture brands, you know, felt like the company was doing some, something wrong because they weren't going to Asia fast enough. Like we're going to miss out. And, um, I think ultimately Thomasville probably did some things, um, that with product in particular from overseas that they never could have made in Thomasville. Uh, Ernest Hemingway is a great example. I mean, that, that brand probably did, at its peak, almost $90 million in a year, which is like amazing, like one group. Right. Um, and, but they never, you know, parts of that were made in Thomasville and and a lot of it was made in the Philippines, but ultimately, you know, um, you know, Thomasville lost a little, you know, a fair amount of its soul, um, in the process of, uh, transferring a lot of the knowledge that they had as a quality brand. Um, to, you know, having a quality brand coming from another location, right? So um, I think there's probably still a little bit of people that think Ethan Allen, you know, is in Danbury, Connecticut, you know, that's Ethan Allen. And, you know, if you're named after a city like Thomasville, I think, you know, there's there's something with that brand that makes sense to people um, that, you know, over time, you know, uh, has obviously been lost, whether it's still in that Costco box with that sectional, I'm not sure, but, uh, um, but People still remember it. Yeah, that's true. So you um, you were there at Thomasville, and then you went to um, a retailer that certainly was just exactly like Pottery Barn. You went to Walmart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So tell me about that transition. I mean, I, I can see a connection, right? I can see a, a kind of linear logic to Thomasville, Pottery Barn, Thomasville, right? You're, you're working, you know, in, in kind of a similar area. And Walmart is a real different, a different animal in many ways, not just in terms of obviously style and price point, but in terms of volume of business, um, I mean, you're talking about a scale that just dwarfs anything else. What was that like? Yeah, so if, if I tried to draw parallels to, um, you know, being in, you know, the, you know, what we'll call just the North Carolina furniture business, which, which I'm, I'm from Michigan. I'm a transplant. I'm like a Michigan furniture area person growing up that moved to North Carolina. And, you know, how do I go from that? to, you know, a, a multi-distribution retailer like a Pottery Barn, or in this case, Walmart. In both cases, um, they reached out to me. I'm not sure um, how my name came up through the recruiting process. Um, and, you know, in Pottery Barn's case, they wanted to get serious about furniture. You know, they felt like they dabbled in it, and they dabbled in it up to $900 million, which was a lot. That's, but that's a lot of knew- dabbling. Yeah, but they knew they wanted to go from there up even further. And to do that, they needed to get serious about it and have folks that really knew what they were doing. And that's that's how my came up and that my name came up in that situation. And if the parallel existed then over to, to Walmart. They were building out their proprietary brands, um, doing a lot of business in furniture, which was only a part of what I did when I was there. And um Maybe the Pottery Barn experience, you know, brought that to them as they were looking to recruit for a creative development position on, on the brand side. And that's how my name came up. So they called me out of the blue and said, you know, we're looking for this person and this person. And I said, well, that's not really what I do. This is what I do. And I, I listed it. And uh, within about a month, they came back to me and said, we'd like to, you know, bring you to Bentonville and talk to you about what you would like to do. And, um, and I, I looked at it as a totally, you know, awesome opportunity to learn from, you know, a, a fortune one company, you know, at the time they were, they were fortune one, um, Exxon, I think was number two. Um, and yeah, it was, again, I, I kind of said, I'm not sure if this is right for me, and they didn't know if they wanted me to live in New York City, which is where the apparel division was based, uh, merchandising, or in Bentonville. And so, um, but yeah, joined joined Walmart and uh, was a VP of uh, design and creative development on the product side, and did everything from sheets and towels and uh, to seasonal merchandising for about 12 seasons a year plus furniture and outdoor furniture. So it was a, it was a major like drinking from the fire hose experiment. I can imagine. I mean, I'm curious at that point, so much of your career has been kind of tied to furniture and product design. And I mean, you were also involved in, in entertainment licensing and partnerships, right. With, with Disney and DreamWorks and Marvel. Um, how do you, I mean, just from a, the standpoint of, you know, emotionally and intellectually, you can say you love to learn and that's, but I mean, this literally is drinking from a hot fire hose. What was that? What did that feel like some days kind of 
trying to catch up? I, you know, I learned right away to, you know, try to listen more than I, than I talk. And, um, you know, for sure within Walmart, which is run by, um, you know, people that know how to execute, know how to move a, move a truck from one place to the other. I mean, it's a logistics company, you know, more than anything that as, as a, as a creative, you know, a business person, which means I have to know how to work numbers and do the creative side. Um, I knew that I could learn from all of my uh, team members um, who, um, who grew up in that business and, you know, had to take us a level of responsibility that um, I, I hadn't seen before. And so you know, we, we were uh, this past weekend kind of cleaning out our basement. We just, everybody's staying at home. So we're all looking at ourselves saying, what can I do next? And <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found, I found, found some old paperwork um, that uh, from my time at Walmart and um, I would get, I was a corporate officer and we had Friday morning officer meetings and it was like going to, you know, what I would consider like a Harvard B school for retail, like every single Friday morning, because, you know, you're with the CEO and the president of Walmart and, all of your um, folks that you work with are there and you're just listening to how the business happened that week. And I, I would get a top seller, hundred top seller list every week um, to review. And, you know, the numbers that you see are mind boggling. And what you realize is, you know, Walmart's a company, my team was, was not, was not a huge team, but, you know, we did the same things. A lot of companies do. The only difference was, we were doing like $425 billion. <laughs> um, and, and you had, you know, lots of stores. It's the same work somebody else does with, with 20 stores, but you know, you're connected to a machine that does, you know, $16 million worth of milk sales a week. And that was 10 years ago. Um, so that, that was what I saw on the sheet that I found, you know, was the, the, that week's hundred top sellers. And I'm like, it's amazing to kind of be a part of that. And there was a lot that you learn about how, how, how to scale. I, I'm curious. Um, does the work scale like the dollars? In other words, are you doing similar kinds of things, but others take care of the scale, the scale takes care of itself? Or does, do you have that much exponentially more to kind of keep your fingers on? I think, um, I think what what I always realized that with Walmart was that detail mattered. So they, they, um, the story from uh, the days of Sam Walton was the day that they stopped putting cents, meaning like those two decimals on the weekly sales sheet because the numbers got too big. When they said they wanted to take those two digits off, Sam noticed it and said, we're never going to take the digits off of these sales sheets. So it's a company that knows how to pay attention to detail. It also, I think, is a company that knows how to leverage itself. Um, I, I will say, Bill, I, I, I call a lot of flack going to Walmart. Everybody's, you know, every, either, I don't think people love, love Walmart, but a lot of people hate it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I learned things there that if I were a Walmart hater, I could convert them because they were doing smart things. They're trying to save the environment, you know, 
changing trucking technology, changing retail technologies. I don't think a lot of people really care about that because they're an easy target. But you know, they they knew that cotton was going to go up in price, as an example, to the home division. And um, they said, why do we have 20 different towels all over the world for all of the Walmart subsidiaries? Let's make one towel and let's buy futures in cotton and let's own the supply chain. Well, they did that. And so then you realize I'm picking colors for a towel that's going to be a global towel all over the world or a global wine glass or whatever, because Walmart's looking at a bigger picture of, you know, how do I leverage our scale to simplify in this case? And so um, that's when you kind of realize, you know, we're one team picking a color for a towel, but those same colors are going to be used at ASDA in uh, the UK or Walmax down in Mexico. And um, that's kind of how far their reach goes. Well, that was something, wasn't it? This is Trisha again for Klausner Home Furnishings. From my very first collection, I knew I'd come to the right place, that Klausner understood what I wanted to do with my furniture, how I wanted to share my recipe for comfortable living with the world. Now let's get back to Bill McLaughlin and see what he and his guests have to share with us. I want to kind of try and synthesize all of these various experiences, right? Because what we do before kind of makes us who we are. And and I mean, we can talk about Larson Jewel if you want, but I'd like to kind of jump forward a little bit. Um, how you took all of those experiences, right? The Thomasville branding experience and what they were at their time, your two stints at two very different retailers. And then you come back to ART. Um, when you come back to the furniture industry, what do you think you brought with you that really helped prepare you for what you're doing now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what, what I learned was, you know, what, what makes, what feeds my soul, like what makes me happy, you know, during the process, you know, you can go and pick up lots of experience and knowledge about, you know, uh, how P&L works and, you know, how do I add value and returns on investment? You can do all those things. And I learned a lot about how to do all that. Um, with my other experience just outside of the core furniture business. But ultimately for me, it's about, you know, how do I personally add value and how do, how am, who am I as with regards to being like a developer? And that's how I started. So I started as a, as a furniture designer, I went to Kendall college up in Grand Rapids and, you know, I live with like a pen in my hand. I got a pen in my hand now and I draw and I sketch and I come up with ideas and, you know, when somebody asked me, um, I was living in Atlanta and somebody asked me, would you ever get back into the furniture business again? I think, I think it was Adam, uh, Adam Tilly. And I said, you know, if the right, if the right opportunity came along, it's a business I love and I love the people and I love working with retailers. And, um, yeah, so ART, like within a couple of weeks, ART reached out and, you know, in a day, Jeff Cook drove down to Atlanta and I was talking to Jeff. Um, and, you know, I, I've as, as much as it's rewarding to be a part of a big company, um, it's even more rewarding to kind of take what you learned and really impact every area of a company, um, which is what we do here at ART. I mean, Jeff Young, who's amazing to work with and Jason Foy on our um, sales side. I mean, 
we wake up coming to the office and, you know, we said, what do we want to do? Where do we want to go? And how do we want to do it? And we're capable of doing that. You know, if you're with a much larger company, you know, you're, you're a cog in the wheel, but the wheel, you know, is connected to many other gears. And I get a lot of pleasure from, you know, um, being responsible and making decisions for, um, for our company and our people within the Marco organization and knowing that, you know, we're, we're going to make it happen. And that, that's where a lot of the fun is. And, and I love this business. And that's, that's really why I'm back in furniture, because I, I love what we do here. And I love the people. And interestingly, I mean, you and Adam kind of tag teamed, right? And he, he left ART, you joined ART. It was uh, interesting how your paths kind of um, semi-crossed there again. So it's, it's an interesting industry. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, Mark Hoare, you know, just like, just like with furniture brands, you know, I, I really enjoyed um, Mickey Holloman's leadership in particular. And he was the reason why I came back to Thomasville. I got a call from somebody who said, Mickey wants to talk to you. Would you ever be interested in leaving Pottery Barn to come back to Thomasville? And so I talked to Mickey. And then next thing you know, that's how I ended up back in Thomasville from California. And, um, you know, with this, you know, ART, which I had kept eyes on, and I knew about the company, absolutely. And I knew about its, you know, uh, partnership and ownership with Markor. Well, you know, I used to work with uh, Richard Fong on projects uh, with Thomasville in the early 2000s, you know, and, and met him very early on and have got a high level of esteem for the Fong family and the Markor company. You know, ART being a part of Markor in its massive growth at retail in China was a real, real draw for me um, when Adam left and um, to take this role. And so um, that, that, you know, being a part of something bigger, you know, is, is, is a, maybe a good theme for what I've been doing. And, you know, Markor is a great partner. And so, you know, was very, very happy to join ART. At a, at a company, I mean, if we're talking about size and scale, right? I mean, ART is not Walmart in terms of sales. It's not Pottery Barn in terms of sales. But is there something that you find, I mean, I'm listening to what you're saying in the sound, is there something that you find satisfying about having a kind of more intimate level of control, right? Because in an organization like Walmart, your, your piece is, you know, you're one molecule in this giant organism. And at a company like ART, your ability to influence outcomes and to ha- and to touch people directly, it sounds to me like that's something that's appealing to you, that you enjoy that personal touch. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, I mean, the personal touch um, at Pottery Barn would have been uh, doing the seasonal floor set in their flagship store in Burlingame, California, and watching customers walk in and pick up a plate, you know, or sit in a chair that you sat in. And, um, you know, that's, that's like the rewarding experience, you mm-hmm. know, that, that you're able, and I think that's what makes the home, um, uh, focus companies like ourselves and, and, and all the others in this industry unique is because there's an intimate connection that you have to somebody enjoying their home. And you can imagine what's, going from pen to paper to factory to retail floor to home 
that somebody's sitting on that sofa and they're enjoying something that you had a part of. So I wouldn't call it like, you know, that's good to have control as much as, you know, there's, there's influence that, you know, we all are able to provide to, to try to do stuff. And, you know, it's not always perfect either. This industry is not like making widgets out of plastic and steel, you know, we work with something that's, um, that's a natural element. And so if you're not used to that, you know, it may not be your cup of tea, but um, absolutely having a connection to people in their homes um, is something that is, is probably one of the more rewarding parts of, of what we do. So I want to talk about ART, which um, I mean, even ART before Adam joined and way ART when you joined very different from where it started in terms of its style, its position in the market. And then more recently, um, Jeff Young, you know, came in as CEO. Uh, I know the two of you recently sat down with our own Tom Russell and talked about some of the changes. I mean, it sounds like there is a, a very um, candid reassessment that the, that the two of you have made about the business and where ART is going and where it needs to go. So tell me a little bit about that assessment that you've made. Um, and, and then I, I have a little quote here that I want to toss to you about how you assess the upholstery program. But I mean, you've really made some significant changes recently in terms of, you know, price points and collections and things. Yeah, I think, you know, over time, um, ART, um, when, when I joined, you know, we had, had really great products and they all look great, um, but they were starting to go with up in price, you know, uh, the costs in China are increasing. There's, you know, economic changes to the way a lot of companies have functioned that have increased price. And um, over time, I think uh, ART just got a little bit uh, too expansive with products and choices and um, not as good a value as, as they could have been. And, you know, I, if, if anything, you know, uh, knowing kind of who you are and what you do and how to get down to basics is always really important. And um, that's really what we're focusing on. We're focusing on who are we, what value do we provide um, within, you know, uh, the domestic market, I would call it, because our designs that we develop also go to our retail stores in China. But we're, we're the engine, the creative engine that helps feed our China retail stores, which is kind of a whole nother thing. But if we can simplify and deliver value and have really great products, that's what we should do. And if, if, if we're not doing that, it's fine to kind of call ourselves out and say, you know, I'm not sure that really hit the mark. And I think, you know, we, we sell to a lot of really, really smart people. And when they see something that they like and they think it's going to sell in their store, that's part of it. You know, it still has to retail in a store, <laughs> but um, if, if we, if we do something that doesn't, uh, doesn't hit the mark, we want to know. And, and, you know, course correct. And what Jeff's really brought to us is uh, an opportunity to, you know, probably say it a little louder, you know, we're going to change and we're going to go do this because, you know, the business needs uh, demand of it. And that's really what we've done. Well, two of those course corrections, I, I think, of probably most visible to the outsiders, um, 
re rethinking the epicenters collection, which was really a focal point for uh, for a couple of markets there, and also the commitment to outdoor. That that looked like that was about to be a, a major new area of expansion. Um, why don't we start quickly with outdoor, and then I want to talk about epicenters. What was the reassessment um, with regard to outdoor? Well, you know, similar to the increase in costs on the China side of uh, manufacturing and tariffs, um, outdoor quickly went from uh, an opportunity for us to add value to, uh, you know, a a massive, um, you know, additional cost with regards to tariffs and price increases. And, you know, we were, and probably I would say the upper middle of the price point with outdoor and um, just weren't able to provide the value that, that we needed to. Now, at the same time, um, a lot of the manufacturing facilities that were making the product were also slowing down and MOQs either getting out of it or MOQs were doubling. And uh, just didn't make financial sense for us to continue to do that. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a good thing if you can, you know, if, if, if you're not, if something's not going to work out that you figure that out pretty soon. And for us, you know, um, probably was better for us to simplify and not be an outdoor. And that doesn't mean we won't reenter it. Um, but I think it, we would when it's the, the right time for us. Mm-hmm. And epicenters that was, uh, for folks who don't know, that's it's kind of a, um, a city centric or a, you know, a region centric, right. Based on kind of the specific look of uh, particular portions of the country. Um, I know that's done well in China, but uh, it didn't seem to quite catch on as strongly here in the U.S. Can you tell me a little bit about the epicenters and the decisions that uh, that went into that? Yeah, so um, epicenters in the beginning was but recognizing principle for ART and an internal brand, but then also a uh, retail uh, uh, brand in China. Uh, that was started by Marcor. Of course, Marcor has its Marcor retail stores, which um, also sell Caracol within those stores and Ethan Allen. And then there are ART stores, which um, there's a little over 225 ART single branded stores in China. And the sub brand under ART, which is a little hipper, kind of like a West Elmish type of a, uh, a brand. Uh, was uh, epicenters, and so MART uh, here in the U.S., and then also the retail concept happened at the exact same time. And so um, I think why it does well in China is it's it's a fully merchandised, single branded retail store, and you walk in and there's an experience, and products all play off of each other. Um, it's it's not as easy, you know, if you're a wholesaler in the United States to take those same products and, you know, put them in retailers that, you know, may or may not all share a similar vision. And I think every retailer wants to appeal to the new generation of furniture buyer that's out there. So um, this brand really, our brand, Epicenters, really appeals to those people. Um, but it's also the market's changing very fast to e-commerce as well. So I think generally for us, and we still bring product out 
under the Epicenters brand. We just came out with a new collection uh, this fall that's that looks amazing and has done well. And that group's going to go to China. It's also going to sell in China. And so I think, you know, we've realized it's a certain part of what we do, and it's a seed for what we do overseas. Um, but, you know, it'll, it'll only usually only be a certain size or element of what we currently do here within ART within a mix of all of our other products. Talk about size and scale, because I think that was something um, that you talked about a little bit in the story that we did, that the scale of epicenters didn't seem to quite align with where it needed to here in this market. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's that product line also started, you know, with a little bit higher first costs and um, probably a little bit large in scale for some of the final purposes. And, um, you know, we, we also change the scale for how it's used in China um, because it can get very particular. And so, you know, the new products that we have within that channel, um, you know, a little bit more human scale for the purposes that we have and a little bit more nimble with the development on the product. So not quite as extensive overall. And I think, you know, we, we did stop using just a singular city because, you know, we find out that, you know, not everybody can relate to, you know, living in Miami, but everybody can relate to the north side or everybody can relate to, you know, a, a, a Tamarack and other uh, names that we've used to, to as organizing principles for the group. So, you know, the ethos is still there and drives a lot of what we do into retail in China. And, you know, it was really a style and price segment for, for us at ART. Uh, so tell me a little bit about um, how Bobby Burke fits into this, because I did see you say something about um, that that collection. And also, uh, you know, what is what is your view on, uh, you know, licensing and how that fits in with what ART does? So um, great question. The um, Bobby's star really kind of started to rise when. Um, uh, when I joined ART uh, and the Queer Eye show started, so probably not you know not as high as it is now, but it was definitely on the rise. And I think um, for us, it's a great opportunity to get more access into the consumer interest environment, which would be, you know, how do we connect with folks who don't know who ART is, you know, and maybe. You know, they don't wake up in the morning thinking, I've got to go to the furniture store, buy something. But how do you connect to somebody who has got access to consumers and access to people who, you know, are like-minded, especially when it comes to decor? And I think that's that's really what Bobby brings to us. Um, he's, he's an amplifier. He's a microphone and um, has been great to work with um, and allows for us to have a great relationship when it comes to developing product that appeals to folks that he's got a pulse on. And I think that's where partnerships like this make sense is they're able to do something that you don't typically do yourself and able to amplify you and do things quicker than you would have done before. Does it help with Bobby too, that, that he has a retail sensibility? So it's not designed for design's sake. It's not esoteric. It's not, I mean, you know, he's, he's pragmatic when he sits down and, and starts to talk about these things, he has background experience 
um, and comes at it from a furniture perspective. He does. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's, you know, he's not the one to, you know, cry when the favorite product doesn't make it through the process, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we all, you know, passion's a great thing, right. But if you choose based on passion, <laughs> then you can make mistakes. And so you know, Bobby's really great at understanding, you know, that it's a business and, you know, there's certain things we can and can't do. Um, and so, um, yeah, the fact that he's had, had his own retail stores and, you know, he, he started in furniture, uh, retail. And, um, so he, he kind of knows, um, how things work and, uh, and hasn't really, hasn't lost, lost his roots either. You know, he, uh, he's quite humble and talented and, um, has been a great partner. So, um, it's, it's been a pleasure to work with him. Absolutely. Um, so you also, along with these other changes, there have been a uh, kind of a realignment of price points and where ART sits in the marketplace. I mean, it's not dramatic. It's not like you've gone, you know, from one level to, you know, you haven't gone from Pottery Barn to Walmart if no, you know, no judgments intended there. But those are dramatically different price points. But you have kind of repositioned in terms of, of the value proposition and where ART positions or place plays in the market. What was the strategy behind that? What what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, so... um we want to better than anything be the best partner for our retail customers and to be able to do that you know we want to provide a value i think that's what art has always been um it's not that the product is is less than somebody else's product when it comes to the content of it but you know we always want somebody to look at and say you know think they got um $600 $600 worth of furniture for, for 529, you know, or more than that. That's, that's the ethos of how, how we do things. And, you know, for us consolidating our manufacturing uh, in Vietnam and our warehousing, which is primarily done from Vietnam and our mixed container program out of Vietnam has been the bedrock of our strategy over the past six months. and. By doing that, you know, we've been able to come become much more more efficient. And I think during this pandemic, we've all learned how to become more efficient. And that's made us a better company and also allows us to deliver a better value. So if we can simplify, have great products, have the right SKUs from one location, we can deliver better value. And that's really been our focus um, um, to to get to those those price points and we think you know there's a there's a gap between you know uh the mid price point and the bottom end of the upper mid and so we want to have quality that you know some of our competition have but land in a value that's somewhere in the middle and we think that that's gonna you know be meaningful at retail um, you know, either the retailer is going to make more money on their product when they sell it, or a consumer is going to come in and get something for a better value than they would have otherwise. So, but it's really that, that centralizing of our supply chain that's allowing us to deliver a better value. Mm. 
Speaking of supply chain, everybody's struggling with that these days. How are you guys dealing with uh, with all of the issues that that folks are facing in terms of freight increases and material costs and shipping from Asia, all of that kind of stuff? I mean, even finding labor. I mean, is that is that something that you have to deal with too? Yeah, we. You know, we're. I, I don't think any one of us. Um, five months ago would would one think that we're still dealing with this pandemic the way that we are because become a new normal and two would think that we'd go from canceling orders because factories were shut down to reordering and you know planning out the next six months because uh you can't get enough um our backlogs are um are as high as they've ever been and you know we're fortunate to have good business relationships uh, in Vietnam, and of course, um, in China with um, our Marcor factories. So um, we're we're faring just fine when it comes to placing orders. But you know the lead times are extending, and you know the key thing for us is to do the best we can to fulfill promises um, on the product. Um, for sure, shipping costs are going up. You know the law of supply and demand is going to push things, um, I think to go up a little bit, but, um, we're probably going to see that, you know, across multiple product categories, uh, for, for folks here in the U S. So, you know, we just want to stay on target and use our relationships and our ownership stakes to make sure that we can keep delivering, you know, uh, according to our backlog and our customers orders. So as we look at the next two markets, as people start to see some of the implications, uh, the some of the outputs of the new ART, and I and I think we'll wrap up on this question. What do you think will surprise people most when they come to see ART? Well, I think when they come in the door, you know, which it's you know the first customers that came in for pre market were like, you know, you're here. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> opening their arms, but not you know. Not getting too close, but I think when people walk in um, to our space, they're going to notice, you know, how clean and fresh we look. And, you know, we've changed the aesthetic of how we present product to be simpler. And um, I think, you know, we're, we think that, you know, technology has changed the way we think and the way we do business. And the way we make choices and, you know, all I'll say is, you know, our showroom reflects that, you know, when you walk in, you get a feeling like I'm making singular choices, but I can still see everything. Um, and so um, that's, that's probably the biggest change. And then the next would be that um, the products are right. You know, um, uh, the comfort's right. And the look and feel is correct. We spend a lot of time making sure that, you know, we're not going to introduce it unless we're proud of it and we think that it's going to have a place. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, you're going to, people are going to see a real difference the second they walk in the door. Well, good. Well, um, it'll make a good to- story to follow as we see how that continues to evolve. Doug, I really appreciate you taking the time today, um, socially distanced and uh, respectively from our home offices. Absolutely, Bill. Appreciate it. All right. My guest this week was Doug Rosenboom, Senior Vice President of Merchandising and Marketing at ART Furniture. Thank you for joining us. I'm Bill McLaughlin, wishing you good business.